some of the differences are, <clears throat> so we can just kind of get this out of the way before we go into it, but in the War of Armageddon, what stops it is the personal uh, visual return of the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth. And as you get in your handouts, many think that he comes down and touches the Mount of Olives first. I don't believe he does. I think he actually goes to Basra first, which is Hebrew for Petra, which in your Bibles, in Micah 2.12, I believe, it says the sheep pen. And that's where at the midpoint of the trib, remember in Matthew 24 when Jesus says, when you see all these things take place, run for the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, which Daniel the prophet spoke of, flee. Pray it's not a Sabbath. Pray you're not nursing. All this stuff, just flee. Flee Jerusalem because that's when Second Thess 2 happens and the Antichrist sets up an image of himself and literally all hell breaks loose for Israel and he starts chasing that nation and trying to kill it, literally annihilate Israel because that keeps his program going. Satan knows better than anybody that if Israel's wiped out, there's no second coming, he can go on, his program. If uh, Israel's not wiped out, then at some point in their history, which turns out to be at the end of the trib, they will say, Baruch Abba B'Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will literally look to him whom they pierced and mourn for him as they mourn, as one mourns for an only child. Zechariah 12.10. That's when the, when the nation repents. That repentance brings the second coming. So Satan knows this. So see, he's going to go after them with a vengeance, and they're going to flee Revelation 12, I believe, believe it's 16 on, it says that it, they're going to be, there's a flood, and that's a euphemism for an attacking military army. After Israel, that's the armies of the Antichrist chasing Israel. They go into Jordan, which is, uh, at certain places in Scripture, is a place that's protected by the Lord for Israel to flee to in the second half of the trip. So, the difference between the end of Armageddon and the end of the Ezekiel War. In the Ezekiel War, you have no personal, personal visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is stopped, hopefully as we read, <laughs> by a series of miraculous earthquakes, hail, uh, armies imploding upon one another, much like Gideon did. You remember with the Midianites? The Midianites ended up destroying themselves when the trumpets blew and all this stuff. Well, that happens in the Ezekiel War. And the war of Armageddon, if I understand it correctly, in Zechariah 14, it's all, the entire world is against Israel. The, uh, <clears throat> the aligned forces of the Antichrist gather at Megiddo, which is a city within uh, the mountains that start the Jezreel Valley up in northern Israel. And... Uh, much like England served as a staging ground for World War II for the invasion of Normandy, Megiddo uh, will be a staging ground for the armies of the Antichrist at that particular time in the trib. So this war at Ezekiel is stopped by a series of miraculous circumstances. And then Israel burns dead for seven months, uh, uh, buries dead for seven months, burns fuel for seven years. So one more, Armageddon, you're going into the Messianic Age very shortly. The other war, the earth is going to be here for at least seven more years. Now, the reason we know that is there's passages in Isaiah 
And I realize I'm throwing a lot out, but there's passages in Isaiah that point to the fact that in the Messianic age, when Jesus sits on as the son of David on David's throne and rules for a thousand years, the earth is going to be renovated. And there are passages that say that the Jerusalem will be raised up uh, and, the, and the land around it will be made flat so that Jerusalem sits as a shining diamond, so to speak, in the middle of this vast plain. And, the, and you're not going to have all these dead bodies laying around and tanks and fuel and all this stuff. It's, uh, there's a Greek word in, in Revelation. Um, re, the English word is regeneration. But the Greek is Genesis again. Genesis again. And many believe it's going to, that the kingdom is going to be in vast portions around Jerusalem, if not all over the world, is going to be much like Eden was. So that's debatable, but what is not debatable is that the Lord regenerates, rejuvenates uh, the earth. And you're not going to, it's, it's going to be all cleaned up, and there's not going to be a lot of dead bodies around, and Israel's not going to need any fuel, let alone be burning fuel. So this army of uh, battle of Armageddon is the whole world against Israel. The army, uh, the battle of Ezekiel 38-39 is a five or six nation confederacy, which that's what we're looking for because when we start getting close to the trib is when this war could take place. And so having said that, There's several things that happen to have to happen. Does everyone understand why we're looking for the trib? I, I, that's the question I had to real with, uh, you know, deal with for a long time on my own mind. What does this war have to do with the tribulation? Well, number one, it's never happened in history from the time Ezekiel wrote it. There's never been a six-nation confederacy described in those two chapters that have attacked Israel, and those things have happened like it describes. That's number one. Number two, since Ezekiel wrote his book, as far as I know, Russia and Persia, which became Iran in the 1930s, have never been allies. As of, what, two, three, maybe four years ago, for the first time in all of history, they became open political allies. And it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, Russia was technology-rich, money-poor. Persia, which became Iran, was money-rich, technology-poor, so they started trading stuff. Uh, under the, you know, the current of the borders, so to speak, and today they are open allies. Remember in the Iraq-Iran war of the early 80s, who were we allies with? Iran, right? They were allies with Iraq. So we were supplying Iran with tanks, they were supplying Iraq with tanks. Now they're supplying Iran, and we've just gotten out of Iraq. It shows you how quickly the world is changing. And... Um, they, with China, have not put sanctions on Syria with that mass murder going on. And, you know, Syria is a puppet state of Iran, and proxy wars are going on all the time over that part of the region. So as of the last three or four years is when that war could have taken place. But what I want to show biblically is that <clears throat> another reason is in Matthew... Sorry, I'm speaking so fast that I was just trying to give you all an overview. In Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, is it kind of gives us some hints. 
And Jesus just got through talking about the temple being destroyed at the end of 23. His disciples say in verse 3 of 24, three questions. When will these things happen? What will be sign of the, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that's the part we want to look at. Um, the negative answers are like in uh, 4 through 6 and 7 and 8. But the positive answers, I mean, those things, famines and earthquakes and all these things have happened since time immemorial. But where does it say? Oh, and starting with verse 7, but in answering their question, what will be the end of the age, uh, I think most of you know, when you ask these questions, you want to know what did the author mean to the people he wrote it to? That's the first thing you want to decide. So the end of the age to the first century Jewish mind meant the end of the age in which we live, which, by the way, is the age in which we live, just a much later date. And then they viewed the, there was two ages, the one in which you live, followed by the age in which Messiah would rule, the kingdom. Well, Israel rejected its king, rejected its Messiah, and thus rejected the kingdom. So that was from a human paradigm, postponed, God's mind, he gets no surprises, he knew it all along, that was postponed till later. So, the end of the age, though, he gives, a, he gives a clue. He says, for nation will rise against nation. Well, what's new about that? Absolutely nothing. Nations have been fighting each other since Genesis, right? Uh, kingdom against kingdom. What's new about that? Absolutely nothing. And, these are euphemisms for regions being at war. We don't have time, but we'd go back to Jeremiah and see uh, just examples of the Middle East and other parts of the world being at war, regions being at war. <clears throat> so when it says nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom, biblically speaking, you're talking about regions being at war with one another. But there's that first as of 1914, as it relates to this text. In verse 14, in verse 21, in verse 30, uh, 29, and 31, it gives inferences, if not direct statements, about the entire world being involved in this regional conflict. And the entire world was never thought of to be in regional conflict until 1914, World War I. And shortly after that was World War II. So the first hint that Jesus gives is, when you see regional conflict worldwide, know that we are near the end of the age. And then the next thing is, uh, so that's what we're looking for, as far as the trib's concerned, right? Does everybody know what the tribulation is? It's got two synonymous terms. Time of Jacob's trouble. 70th week of Daniel. Whenever you hear any one of those terms, they're all synonymous terms for the last seven years before the Messiah returns. And the whole purpose of the tribulation is to break Israel's neck, to break the stubbornness of Israel and cause the metronome of prophetic history to finally have a positive volition towards their Savior. Well, that's, that's what it's going to take. It's very discouraging to see that. But 
What Ezekiel 20 talks about is, in preparation for 38 and 39, is that at some point in history, which hadn't happened for 1,750 to 1,800 years, started in the 1890s under Theodore Herzl and the modern movement of Jews back to the land, at some point in history, God says that he will bring the Israel out of the, dis- the diaspora or the dispersion, which they were in because of judgment, and then he'll bring them back into the land for judgment. Now, that's not a happy story, but that's what that chapter talks about. And many of the chapters, and the reason I'm not going into them, one is for time, but two, they have what's called double fulfillments. They had a fulfillment in the time in which they lived so that the people of that day could have something to relate to, but it never was ultimately fulfilled. The ultimate fulfillment was a much later time from when the prophets wrote to the nation at that time. So each passage is like a Bible study unto itself. But the Bible clearly states in Ezekiel 20 that God will bring them out of wrath into wrath. And then, but why? Well, ultimately to glorify his own name. All of this is to glorify his name. In 36, it says, Therefore I say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you were sent. Okay? Now, when Ezekiel wrote, do you all happen to know the time period? Well, there's too many hands. I can't call on everybody. It was roughly, <laughs> huh? Babylon. Babylon, right. They were either going into or fixing to go into Babylon. And so they were going into one nation, but here he calls them out of all the nations, or many nations, 24, for I will, let's see, take you from the nations, the goyim, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Well, that's only happened in, you know, after the, you know, the, the resurrection. So uh, there are certain things that never happened in past history that have happened within the last 1900 years. That's one of them. And also for the, uh, right after this, this passage, which goes into the New Covenant, is the uh, vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel. And you all have probably read that. Uh, God says, what do you see? He says, you know, valley of dry bones. And they, these bones are symbolic, <clears throat> many believe, of the nation of Israel coming back to the land and eventually taking spiritual life in through trusting in the Lord. Well, it's, it's sinew to uh, sinew to sinew, flesh to sinew, skin to flesh. And the last thing in the four-stage chronology of them coming back is breath or life into them. And the Hebrew word for breath is ruach, and it can be three different words. It can be wind, spirit, or literally breath. And breath and spirit are kind of the same thing, right? They're not really the same thing theologically, but uh, when your breath leaves you, your spirit leaves you too. So they they kind of go hand in hand sometimes as far as life is concerned. Well, Israel came back to the land in unbelief. They're spiritually dead. Uh, there's lots of Jewish believers over there now. In fact, uh, I think someone said there are as many as 14 to 15,000 Jewish believers just within Israel alone. 
There's a lot of Jewish believers in Buenos Aires. A lot. They've got huge uh, churches down there filled mostly with Jewish people who have come to the Lord. And a whole lot is happening worldwide in Israel. It's not as massive as the Muslims or the Asians, but for the small numbers of Jews that there are per capita, a lot of Jewish people are coming to the Lord. Unfortunately, uh, not near as many in the United States, kind of like the rest of us. But uh, the the revival that seems to be going on in a good sense over the world that the Lord is causing uh, is also happening with Israel, and a lot of this is going on in Israel. So he brought them starting in roughly in 1890 with a much more massive advance after the Shoah or the Holocaust and in 48, out of wrath, the wrath of the judgment where he spread them all out for rejecting the Messiah, bringing them back, and for the purpose of wrath, the wrath of the tribulation. So 37 was the dry bones vision, and then you have 38 and 39. Um, for the Ezekiel war to happen you have to have a couple things for Israel to be attacked you have to have an Israel (laughs) so what I'm trying to do is I feel very poorly but kind of move us along to where we are as of today you can't attack Israel if there is no Israel so there was no Israel prior to 48. So the way God worked it out is he started bringing him back before 48. And then after the Holocaust, it was in earnest at 48. Ben-Gurion stood up, declared the modern state of Israel in existence. And, but we know from certain passages in the Bible that during the tribulation, if you're combining the two events with the tribulation, there's going to be a tribulation temple. Daniel 9, 2 Thess 2 passage in Ezekiel and and, uh, one other. There's three temples in the scriptures. Two sanctioned by the Lord, Solomonic temple, the Zerubbabel temple, and then the Antichrist will sanction a third during the tribulation. And then a fourth in the kingdom. Well, you can't have a temple sanctioned by the Antichrist if you don't have Jerusalem under Jewish control. You can't have Jerusalem under Jewish control without Israel being in some form of Jerusalem. So 48 wasn't good enough for this war to take place because in 48 it was under the Jordanians, the Hashmonean control, and East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is, where the temple will be built, sanctioned by the Antichrist, had to be under Jewish control. That didn't happen until 1967 when Moshe Dayan, you remember the Jewish general with the patch, uh, he was always my hero till I found out what he did. But they got control of the Temple Mount. And he's still kind of my hero, but... Uh, well, actually, what they did was they, they flew the Israeli flag over the Temple Mount for about six hours. And then he said, in an act of benevolence, what he thought, I guess, we're not going to do it to them what everybody else has done to us. And so ultimate sovereignty is under Israel, under the Lord, but then he gave it back, and it's done nothing but caused problems ever since. In fact, the gold on the uh, Dome of the Rock was given by Saddam Hussein, the latest covering of it. 
But, so that was accomplished in 1967. So really, for the war to take place, and what they're going after, of course, in this, in this war is to take the capital. They never get there. That's another difference, which I forgot. In the War of Armageddon, the war starts at Har Megiddo, or the city of Megiddo, that guards the pass that comes down into the Jezreel Valley and goes all the way to Jerusalem, and, and much of Jerusalem is sacked before the Lord returns. And the Ezekiel 38-39 war never gets down there at all. The armies are destroyed on the mountains of Israel, so that's another huge difference. So there's, there's, there's you know, five, six major differences between these two wars. So in my mind, you have to separate them. And then once you get over the idea, we talked about the Gog-Magog thing, right? It not being a proper name, but it being titles. Did, did I mention that? Well, it's like Caesar or Pharaoh. Then you can have those titles of Israel's enemies at any point of history, and you can have those titles used in different places, and it doesn't throw you all off as to having one war, and then where do you put, place that one war? There could be several big wars that Israel's in over history with those same titles involved. Okay, let's go through this. Uh, 38, of the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Raj, Magog, the prince of Rosh, let's see, chief prince, some say, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now the same root in Hebrew for Rosh is used for Russia. Uh, many believe, and I, I tend to agree, that Meshach, uh, because of its, its, its root turned into Moscow, and Tubal, because of its roots, turned into Tubolsk, both of which are there to this day. But do Meshach and Tubal ring any bells? I thought so. thought they would. Um, in Genesis 10, the table of nations, these were two sons that moved up there and settled those lands, right, of the Jephites. So these places took on the names, probably of some of the original family names, of going way, way, way back. And derivatives of them are there to this day. Uh, thus says the Lord God, Behold, am I against you, O God, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal. I will turn you about, put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, and a great company buckler with them. And then here's the confederacy, the attacking uh, armies. Persia. Is that today? Iran. Who's Israel's worst enemy? Iran. Ethiopia, which some say is Cush, Put, which could be Libya, with them and all of them with Shield and Hupper, Gomer. Uh, the rabbis say that's Germany. I don't necessarily agree. Basically, Betogarma and Gomer, Gomer could be Germany, but I just found that hard to be true after the Holocaust, how Germany could turn again against Israel. Any of you know what's going on in Germany today? It is, it, it's like a, a runaway train getting anti-Semitic again. 
the Norwegians, Finland, all those areas have been that way for a long time. In fact, they've boycotted Israeli goods for the last 10, 15 years. But it is now spreading down into Europe. And Betogarma is the, the place I've been watching, not the place I've been interested in, because that's the Armenia-Turkey region. And what was Turkey as, of, as little as a year ago? If they weren't allies with Israel, they were at least friendly to Israel. And Israel could use their airspace if they needed to and, and do things. Now, Turkey, being a secular Muslim country, um, has basically turned its back on Israel and is going the other way. So in the geopolitical scene, things are jumping around like squirrels. It's at breakneck speed. And so Betogarma, the region of Turkey and Armenia, which was friendly as little as a year and a half ago, is no longer friendly towards Israel. In fact, if Israel goes in, whether through an EMP bomb, electromagnetic pulse bomb, or with warplanes, they cannot, from what I understand, fly over Turkey right now. Uh, and then if there was any doubt as to where uh, at least Rush was, from the remote parts of the north, with all of its troops and, of course, many peoples or armies with you. If you looked where Russia was or is, uh, hasn't moved as far as I know, and drew a straight line up from Jerusalem or Israel, it is almost due north to the remote parts of the north. Now, as, as of about 10 years ago, people started saying, well, <clears throat> you know, Russia is no longer... Uh, communist. So it's uh, therefore it's gravitating towards having a God consciousness. And so therefore there's more believers there and they keep extrapolating and inferring and extrapolating. Therefore they won't attack Israel. But we got to keep in mind in all of this <clears throat> that God in the scriptures doesn't talk about whatever political aspirations are in a, a region at the time. He doesn't say if it's communist, they'll attack, or if the capitalists, they'll attack, or socialist, or Marxist, or whatever. No. Governments come and go, and sometimes names of countries come and go, but regions stay the same. It's talking about a region here uh, with fairly conclusive place names, you know, as far as the names of cities and so forth. So it says, after many days... Uh, this is the timing of the invasions, you will be summoned. In the latter years, the latter years is a euphemism for basically where we are or from the Messiah on, from Christ on. Um, come into the land that is restored from the sword. Come into Israel that is restored from war. Was 48, uh, did that come and go without Israel having to do anything? I mean, 24 hours within, after when Ben-Gurion stood up, uh, the five surrounding nations with over 100 million people against a few hundred thousand swore to drive Israel into the sea. And in fact, that's why uh, the Arab peoples that were living in the land, the Israelis told them to stay, keep your homes, keep your cities, fight with us, because they were Israeli citizens. The surrounding uh, Arab nations said, no, go to the perimeter of the country because we're going to bomb the snot out of Israel. We're going to kill them. We're going to annihilate them. And then you can go back and have your old homes and theirs too. Well, it was an ingenious plot because what it did was create forever, not forever, but an, until this very day, a living, breathing, cancerous hatred for Israel. 
from the peoples that went to the perimeter because they were never assimilated or amalgamated into the vastly superior land-wise countries that they could have went into. They've got the money, they've got the food, they've got the land. You all know how big Israel is compared to the, all the surrounding countries, but they wouldn't let them back in because they wanted them to hate Israel and hate the Jews, and they do. And so they've got like a, a buffer zone in between the countries that are always wanting to get them, and then they've got a little uh, surrogates living around the perimeter that they can use. And, and, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas and all those people, they're very close to the borders. So it's worked. It was a good plot, and it worked. But Israel, no, got their land after the, you know, granted it through the War of Independence in 1948. Uh, verse 9, you'll go up and come like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops. That says the Lord God all... It will come about in that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So this invasion will be premeditated. But the spearhead of all this, most believe, is Rosh or Russia. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go up against those who are at rest and living securely. Now this, I don't know if you all remember all this, but this, this word securely throws a lot of people off. And let me explain. That's why they put the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 with inside of the tribulation, because I don't believe the rapture starts the tribulation. That's taught a lot and believed a lot, but there's no verse in the scriptures that ever says the rapture starts the trib. The closest verse in the scriptures that says where it probably will start is in Daniel 9, where the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel and makes a pact. And when that nation which has had so much blessing and so much light and so much objective, God-breathed truth given to it, it's going to hack the Lord off to no end. They made a pact with Satan's minion. And so that's where the curtain comes down for the 70th week, i.e. the tribulation, and that's in my mind, kicks it all off. Well, uh, let's see. So, so what people say is that they're living securely in the land. That means it's inside the trib because he's made this pact and they can finally relax with unwalled, unwalled villages. Problem is, that's not what the word means. The Hebrew word is batak. And if you looked, you know, at I mean, most of you who, who've looked up words understand it doesn't just say, here's the word, here's what it means, especially in an ancient language. It's here the word, and here's 20 different things of what it can mean, depending on, one, the context, depending on how it was used in that day, and depend on its classical use among the secular people of that day. There's a whole lot of different ways. What this means really is, who are living in confidence. They are living in unwalled villages today. The kibbutzim over there is unwalled villages. And today they are living in confidence because they're, they have nuclear power. They're, Israel is well armed. They know what they're doing. Uh, so that throws people off. That's true today. It doesn't have to wait for the trib. To capture spoil and seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places, verse 12. Let's see, I skipped 11, didn't I? No, that's right. And are now inhabited against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle goods, who live at the center of the world. That would be Israel. Sheba and Dedan, these are Arabian country, countries, and the merchants of Tarshish, 
with all of its villages will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? This, believe it or not, is one of the hardest verses to interpret in the whole passage. It's because people so many, do so many different things with it. But the people who have forgotten more Hebrew than I'll ever know, they basically say it's like if we're standing on a street corner in heavy traffic in Atlanta or Dallas or New York, and we see some muggers go up to this older lady across the street and, and take her purse. We can't get to them. We can't help her because there's all these cars there. So we yell out, hey, stop that. What are you doing? You're robbing an old lady? You know, and we're, and we're barking orders, but we can't get over there. Well, I have a hard time seeing it, so I'm just trusting the Hebrew. But what they say is what the world will do in this war, most of the world, because there's only five, six, seven nations, right? They'll say, hey, don't do that. You're all just going in to take the spoil in Israel. And some of you are thinking, I've been over there. I don't see any spoil. <laughs> well, there's a little bit. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the point is they won't do anything to stop it. They won't come to Israel's aid. So you're going to have to have governments around the world that have, quote-unquote, sympathies to Israel, that have, at least in the past, maybe currently and concurrently together, a confluence of hoping Israel, hoping it turns out for you, but they're not going to really come to Israel's aid. Does that sound familiar? We're there. I don't know of anybody, and sadly to say possibly even us, if Israel goes in before spring or at springtime, it will help them. Now, they know that, too. And that's why, uh, you know, this guy that, uh, I can't think of his name, but he comes on, he's the former ambassador of Israel to the United States, speaks English very well. He says, we don't ask permission from the U.S. We just hope they don't, in so many words, give us a hard time because we have no options. And believe me, it's a hard decision for Israel to make. If you don't know or haven't thought of what's going on, if they're in a no-win situation almost because if they don't do it and Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they will annihilate, obliterate Israel forever. And Israel is a country that it's so small, it, can only, it cannot survive a, a first strike like that. It'll be gone. Well, we know it's also the only country with a guarantee, so we know something else has to happen. But if they do it, and they feel like they have to do it, it's really just the lesser of two evils because what Iran and Syria uh, will do is unleash all of the homicide terrorist bombers they have on earth uh, against them first and against, against us second. You know, they're, we're the big Satan, they're the little Satan as far as, uh, as their eyes go. So are we there yet? Okay. Wow, we're getting further than I thought. Um, well, let's go to uh, skip down to 39. Y'all have got 38. <laughs> we're, we're skipping a lot, but we just need to. Uh, it will come about, let's, uh, 
38, verse 18, I will come by on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, and in my blazing wrath, I will declare on that day that there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things and all the creeping earth, uh, that word is Adam, it means land. Basically, it's not all over the earth, it's just in the land at that time. That's that's something that needs to be pointed out. I think all of our English translations say earth. So it sounds like it's worldwide. It's not. It's just in that part that part of the earth. Uh, and then all the men who are on the face of the earth, or the face of the land, will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, collapse. Every wall. These are city walls. Okay? It's not every wall over the whole earth. It's city walls in that part of the world. I will carry for a sword against him on my mountains, on my mountains. Uh, each man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain, with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. So that's how this war has ended, with basically miracles from heaven. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself. This is a great verse. And make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Remember verse chapter 36, verse 22? It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you were sent. And then 23, then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself separate or holy among you in their sight. 23, 38, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. I personally believe when, this is just an inference, can't prove it or anything, but when this war happens, it will be the last great time uh, when possibly a, a worldwide revival will take place and possibly hundreds of thousands, millions of people will come to faith worldwide. And God gives you know, planet Earth one more chance. And then 39, and you, son of man, prophesy against God, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you, O God, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. See, if this was Armageddon, you've got all those other nations involved. The world's involved, but this is just these. I will turn you uh, around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mouths of Israel. I'll strike your bow from your left, dash down your arrows from your right hand. Um, verse 4, you will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. You notice Jerusalem isn't mentioned at all. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and, of, and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord. Let's see. Verse 9. Then those who inhabit the city of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, wars, war clubs and spears, this is the only part that gives me trouble. And I've thought about it for years and I can't figure it out. It's a very simple verse. But I tend to believe that you 
take all prophecy literally. And the reason is, is because all prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. Every single prophecy. You look at all first coming prophecies. They're all literal fulfillments. Uh, so, but I don't understand whether Ezekiel is writing here because he doesn't know how to describe modern warfare or where literally an EMP bomb, electromagnetic pulse bomb goes off that renders all electronics useless. <laughs> you know, Raj? Keegan? Mark? Anybody? I can't figure it out. I don't know. But when the plain, what we were taught was, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Unless uh, parallel passages uh, and axiomatic truths clearly state otherwise. Therefore, take every word its literal, ordinary, usual meaning. Something like that. It's been 30 years, so that's close enough. But the point is, I don't know what to do with that verse. They will take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest. They will make fires with the weapons and they will take the spoil of those and dispose and seize them. Let's see. Well, let's stop there. I can't remember which verses it talks about. But they will, oh, here it is, verse 12. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So that can't be at Armageddon, can it? Because 75 days after Armageddon starts the Messianic Kingdom. You don't have seven months. And you don't have seven years. Also, the Lord cleanses the land himself. Changes it. Changes the topography and everything. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be by their own renown. On that day I will glorify myself, declares the Lord. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through. Sounds like professionals come through to bury the dead. And if it's in the mountains of Israel, up in northern Israel, you'll probably have the dead in, in crevices, in canyons. And if it happens to be biological warfare, you're going to need guys to come by in hazmat suits, right? And take care of this problem. Uh, so parts of this we really don't know. Lots of it we really don't know. But parts of it you can figure out. And you can, and we absolutely know it's never happened. And then if, if this is happening very close to the trib, which most believe it is because of the Matthew 24 passage, it talks about nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom on a worldwide scale, then you're really looking towards very much the latter days, which started it again in World War I. And so as you start putting all this confluence of prophecy together, you just get closer and closer and closer to where we are. And lastly, the alliance, political alliance of Russia and Iran is relatively new. You needed an Israel to attack. You needed a Jerusalem under Jewish control for, to be the capital city. You need all these things in place. So this really could have happened as of three or four years ago forward. And, you know, I don't believe in newspaper exegesis. I don't believe in, uh, that's it, okay, uh, looking to how the U.S. fits into things. Because, personally, I don't really even see the U.S. in the Bible. People look at wings of eagles and this and that, and our, our national symbol is the eagle, so surely it must be us who take Israel 
from Jerusalem at the midpoint of the trip out to Basra, you know, and we're going to do it on F-16s. Well, if that's the case, where were the F-16s when they came out of Egypt? Because the same language is used there. They came out on wings of eagles, you know. Besides, other countries have the eagle as their symbol, so you can't use that. Um, okay, in four and a half minutes, we're going to cover the eight-stage campaign of Armageddon. Stage one, and this, you've got this on your sheets. Can I borrow a sheet? I can't read my writing. I can read this. Assimilate uh, of the Analyte Forces of the Antichrist. Ah. Shoot, this is such a neat study, but um, that again is at Megiddo. And where is Megiddo? The head of the Jezreel Valley. Right? Northwest. Northwest. Right. Up, up in northern Israel. We saw, uh, the Jezreel Valley and the Valley of Jehoshaphat talked about in Joel 2 and 3, the same valley. And in English it means Valley of Judgment or Valley of Decision. I wonder why. So that's stage one. Stage two is the destruction of Babylon. I personally believe the literal, a literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt. Eventually the Antichrist will have his headquarters there. Uh, there's passages in Jeremiah that says, says that when Babylon is destroyed, it's also talked about, I think, in Revelation 18, when Babylon is destroyed, that couriers will have to go tell the Antichrist that it's, that it's been destroyed. See, there's two concurrent wars going on then. One is the war of God's uh, saints during that time, believers, and the other is the armies of the Antichrist. Well, the armies of the Antichrist leave Babylon to go amass themselves to take out the Jews in Israel, God's forces go and take out Babylon. Well, couriers have to be sent. These are passages in Jeremiah 51 and other places. Couriers have to be sent to tell him this. Well, if he's in Babylon, he's going to know it. They don't have to be sent to tell him. So the destruction of Babylon takes place, and normally if your country is being destroyed, you would run back, right? He doesn't go back. And the reason is, is because the Antichrist is not calling the shots. Satan's calling the shots. And Satan doesn't care about him or anybody else. Satan cares about himself and continuing his program. And Satan's program is to annihilate the Jews. Stage three, the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. Jerusalem falls. Stage four, the, uh, the march on Basra of the armies of the Antichrist. Remember, the Jews flee to Basra. That's Micah 2.12. It talks about the sheep pen or the sheepfold. And that's because the Greek word for Basra is Petra. You all saw that in Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom and all that. It starts off at the very narrow gate, just like a sheep pen or a sheepfold. That's why translators put that. And sheep go in one by one so you can count them, but they get inside the sheep pen, and they got plenty of room to move around. Well, the logical question would be is, what, what are the Jews, what's this nation going to eat? These, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Jews go when they flee. And we don't know. And the speculation is God will provide a, a, a kind of manna for them because they're going to have to run there. They're not going to be able to go ahead of time and plant and have everything ready. They're going to have to run there. There's going to have to be food there for an you know, not an entire nation, but a lot of people to go and live. Uh, so, 
the Antichrist marches on Basra to kill the Jews that have fled after the midpoint of the tribs. Five, the national regeneration of Israel. They finally look to the Lord and mourn. And that's when I believe they actually say Isaiah 53. If you read Isaiah 53 with the eyes of a, a repentant Jew, you'll see a lot of the words are in past tense. They're not reading that as we read it. The nation is not reading that passage as we would read it right now. Who has believed our message? And you see all these past tense things. I personally believe they'll be saying that when they finally trust in the Lord. This national repentance brings the second coming, who goes back to, I believe, Basra first, and then moves through the valley up through and arrives in Jerusalem with his cloak stained in blood, uh, which is actually verse 7 from Basra through the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then where everybody thinks he returns, uh, stage 8 first, that's actually the last thing. That's a victory uh, stage. And Fred Tom would go back to read Zechariah uh, 13 and 14. There's a chronological sequence there. But when he stands on the Mount of Olives, it's really a victory ascent. But he's gone to other places first. I don't believe that's the first place he comes back to. I think he comes back to Basra first. And then I think Zechariah 13 says, then he goes to save the tents of Judah. And lastly, he marches up to the Mount of Olives. And we'll, we will all see it in living color in our glorified bodies.